You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a physician and editor-in-chief of Maine, Maine Home Design, Old Port, Ageless, and Moxie Magazines. Love, Maine Radio show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com, grownupgirl.com, where you can get personalized guidance and encouragement for growing a simple yet vibrant life through free advice, workshops, and mentoring programs with local experts. You deserve to shine. Go to grownupgirl.com now to learn about our available programs and classes designed just for you in the Portland area. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port, 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the works of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormaine.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where everybody is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Novelist and screenwriter Richard Russo is the author of eight novels, two short story collections, and the memoir Elsewhere. His novel, Empire Falls, won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2002. His new collection of essays, The Destiny Thief, comes out in May. Thanks for coming in. Great to be here. It's interesting that um, I have this book of your essays in my hand because I had just finished a book of essays that I believe were by Neil Gaiman. And Mm -hmm. um, really an interesting... I guess look over his life as a writer because mm-hmm. it was he had done some reviews he had done some um, pieces for other people's books and and in yours was actually an interesting kind of time capsule of your life as well but in a slightly different way yeah yeah I haven't read the Gaiman but but there are there are a, a fair number of of books that are coming out right now with with writers who are maybe not quite as long in the tooth as I am, but but um, writers who have been writing for a while. So there's the Neil Gaiman um, and Anne Patchett had a wonderful uh, book of essays. This is the story of a happy marriage that came out a few years ago. And now Laurie Moore just had, had a book that just came out, I think this week or last week too, that that looks at. Um, um, at, at her life as a fiction writer, but also as, a, as an essayist and book reviewer, and it's getting a lot of attention, too. So there's something in the water, I guess, <laughs> that's causing causing writers who have been at it for a while to uh, take a step back and, and um, you know, try to try to figure out if if there has been some sort of some sort of pattern uh and of course that's this book is called the destiny thief and it's 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 really about that as i look back on 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 my life as a writer it just seems also just so incredibly improbable all of it (laughs) so the the destiny thief when you wrote about that you were kind of contrasting your life with the right of another the life of another individual yeah. who was also a writer yeah. and at least in theory at the time it seemed like might be the one who had the success and you were known as the one who was going to be the teacher yeah and then somehow something shifted and you had this success as a writer yeah and I believe something about he he called you up to apologize for a, a drunk dial one night, and you said, "Well, thank you for your apology, but you didn't drunk dial me." Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit about that. 
Well, there was this. There was this. I, I gave him. I gave him a fictional. I gave him a fictional name because I, I. I didn't want him to be embarrassed by anything that 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 I might be recounting in this particular essay. But I remember. I mean, I was at that point a. Uh, we were. We were both students uh, at the University of Arizona, taking a taking a workshop class together. But, but I was almost finished with my PhD, and I had only discovered then at pushing thirty that I thought I might want to be a writer. And um, I expected the director of creative writing, when I told him I was interested, I expected him to put me in this graduate level writing workshop. There was a very strong one at the time uh, at the University of Arizona. I expected to be in with other graduate students. But he took one look at my writing and said, no, no, I, I think not. And he put me in this undergraduate, sophomore undergraduate class. Everybody in it was at least 10 years younger than I was. And there was this one, this one really, really talented young man who was writing this rock and roll novel, and it was so good. And I was so jealous because he had, he had at that, at a fairly tender age, discovered not only what he wanted to do with his life, but what what really mattered to him. He seemed to have a great read on his, on what his subject matter might be, and he was just he was just despite being ten years younger, was just miles ahead. And I could tell it, and I think that 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 the that the instructor in the class um, uh, recognized that talent and 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 where he was in the in the overall scheme of things, and and I think every every other student in the class did too. He was the, he was the he was the star, and as and as I did, you know, I did get better, and ultimately I got into the the graduate the graduate workshop, but I don't think that there was a time during during that my entire apprenticeship at the University of Arizona. I don't think that there was ever a time when if you had taken a poll of the participants in the workshop and, and, and asked them, you know, who's going to be, who 10 years from now, 20 years, 30, 30 years from now is not only going to be writing, but maybe writing successfully, who's got a career. I don't think I would have appeared on any of those lists, <laughs> starting, starting with that first sophomore, um, sophomore class. Um, and, and, and so um, I was, I was, um, what I, as I was, I was, I was thinking about all of this, I, I just kept thinking about this one incredibly talented um, young writer um, who did get in touch with me years years later, and he was and he was puzzled by the, exactly the same things that I was puzzled by. You know, how could this have happened? <laughs> what kind of cosmic joke? has just been perpetrated here <laughs> as if I could, you know, as if I would know or as if I could explain it to him. Well, at least you took it that way and not, well, of course I would have been good. I don't know why you even questioned yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. But, that, you know, that's what people do. I mean, people, most people, I think they, it's, you know, they, they get to a certain point if they've been fortunate, if they've had some success. Um, you know, the story that they kind of want to write or rewrite is, Oh, you know, it was all—it was all hard work, and it was all—it was all—you uh, know—it was all talent and hard work, and 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 they—they want to—they want to suggest that that they knew it all along, um, and that it was only a matter of time for things to play out. And I think a much more honest assessment of success, certainly my success—I want to—I don't want to speak for everybody here—but my own sense is that. Um, if I got to do this all over again, you know, without the knowledge of what has happened to me, but if I had the same opportunities um, another 99 times to round it off to a full 100, the other 99 wouldn't turn out anything like, 
like this one. There are just too many variables. Um, you know, you make too many mistakes. Sometimes you get things right, but just as often you get things wrong, and you and you change something, and you change everything. So yeah, my part of the reason that destiny fascinates me so much, the whole idea of destiny, is is that um, um, you you get the you get the sense when you're looking at things through one end of the telescope it just when you're young and you're looking at all the things that could happen and you and you see uh, how many how many moving parts there are um but then you get a little older and you're looking at things through the other end of the telescope and it all seems kind of inevitable well of course it isn't <laughs> it isn't you the other the other view is probably closer to the truth i particularly enjoyed the story of the gravestone and the toilet Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it shows this interesting challenge that there is these days with having a sense of humor and yeah. perhaps a little bit of irreverence yeah. about oneself and one's writing. Right. Because what you were describing was, and I'm going to let you tell this story mm-hmm. because I found it very, very funny, and I yeah. read it to the person who was with me, and he also found <laughs> it very funny. But you were describing something that, other people in your family didn't really find all that humorous at all. But every time you would look at this situation, you would crack yourself up. Yeah. And so part of what you say is that it's kind of about your ability to help other people see your way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. Not trying to be funny, mm-hmm. but just present it in mm-hmm. a way so that other people understand the humor. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that story. Well, the story the, the, the story um, um, starts out um, true. It's just, <laughs> there's there's some embellishment later on, but but the story starts out is is true. Uh, when we when we moved to Maine, um, we bought this 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 house um, that um, uh, that had two features uh, that over the over the years. Um, uh, were, were were interesting. Um, there was there was a there was this this apple tree out in the backyard that that grew every year and dropped these poisonous worm infested green green apples out there uh, that I used to mow around on my on my riding mower. Um, and um, what was interesting was at the at the base of the tree there was this gravestone, and it was filled out someone someone had intended to use this to use this gravestone and apparently there was a stone cutter who'd lived in in the house um, many 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 years ago and he had and I never did find out why the gravestone didn't get used but there it was um, leaning up against um, this this kind of poisonous apple tree it was it was as if the gravestone itself was in some way <laughs> Poisoning the tree, just guaranteeing that every year you'd get this this harvest of of, of really disgusting poisonous green apples, and um, there was an inscription. We knew we know we know who the who who the person was who died, and and he was a um, um, Syrian, uh, I I believe. And what he how he ended up in Maine, we don't know. But there was this, and it was it was a kind of. Some of the details were kind of comic on the, or to me anyway, they were kind of comic. But, but um, so here's this 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 kind of emblem of death itself. There's a gravestone in the middle of our backyard, and to almost anybody, 
this thing would have been um, a symbol that we saw every day, a symbol of our own mortality. And why in the world, number one, would you leave it there? <laughs> and, and when we tried to sell the house, um, you know, people would come by and they would see that and, and, and decide they didn't want the house on the basis of the gravestone. You know, they, they really, most people see that symbol and it, and it just, and it, and it reminds them of what we don't want to be reminded of, the fact that we're all going to die. What was, to me, was interesting about that was that it didn't affect me that way at all. You know, I just, so what? So it was a gravestone. Uh, I didn't really believe that it was poisoning the apples in the tree, nor did it particularly bother me that this, that this Syrian, young Syrian man had somehow come to Maine and, and died there. Um, uh, didn't bother me at all that his stone was leaning up against my, my apple tree. Didn't bother me as I was riding around it. And after, after a very short time, I just learned not to see it. It just did not register on my writerly imagination at all. Until one day, when we were, we were um, doing some renovations on the house. And um, in order to uh, put some tile down in the three-quarter bath, we had to pull up the commode. Uh, I say we, the people we hired had to pull up the commode. And for a day or two, while they were working on the bathroom, um, out, out there on the back deck sat the commode. Nothing else is there. No folding chairs. It was late in the autumn. We brought everything back in. So here, right in the middle of the, of the, uh, of the back deck, was this commode open. Leaves were falling, <laughs> swirling out of the sky into the commode. And when I was sitting there in, in my office writing, every now and then I would look up and I would see the gravestone in the distance and right in front of the gravestone, the commode. And it just cracked me up every time. And when my, my kids came home, uh, my daughters came home, I would say, look at that, you know, and my, my wife the same way. And they just kind of squinted at it and didn't understand really why it just tickled me so. But the essay, um, the essay is, is really about that for a writer, that which slows you down. Whatever, whatever it is, because I was able to look at that gravestone, something that really caused other people to slow down. You know, somebody who was thinking about buying the house and was, and was, and, and, and liked everything about it, but then saw that gravestone and just, and it stopped them right in their tracks. They couldn't, they couldn't go any farther. Um, I learned not, I learned not to see that at all. But put the, but put the comic thing, put the, put the commode right in front of it, and now suddenly my imagination is just in, in full bloom. I've got I've got all kinds of 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 um, um, possibilities for fiction, and that's and 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 I think that day I probably already knew it. But if I hadn't known it, I think that day, seeing those two things right in the same frame, and knowing what interested me and what didn't particularly, um, was uh, a crystallizing moment in the sense that I thought, all right, I know who I am now. I'm a comic writer. Because most writers, it's a question of um, what slows you down, what, what causes you to look twice, what causes you to really see something. And for me, it's almost always life's foolishness. People doing, people, people looking for dignity. <laughs> and, and, it, and it eludes them. Um, yeah. You wrote 
um, about the craft of of writing. Mm-hmm. And you you spoke about your, I believe, it was your grandfather mm-hmm. who was a glove maker mm-hmm. in upstate New York, right? <clears throat> and how he was part of, I believe, a, a guild. Mm-hmm. And actually went and spent two years learning mm-hmm. how to make gloves. Yep. Which was unpaid, I think. And Well, it was certainly, if it wasn't unpaid, it was. It certainly wasn't well paid. I think uh, at that time in the guild that he was part of, you were, je- you, you, you were probably um, dependent upon the largesse of whoever was teaching you. And um, and probably whoever that was wasn't making a fortune either. I don't think glove cutters ever made an enormous amount of money. Uh, and my grandfather, um, timing his timing, not being great, kind of came at the very end of this uh, of this 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 whole uh, process. But yeah, he was in a guild, um, and um, I'm sure that that um, during those first couple of years before he you know um, finished his apprenticeship and became uh, became a, a glove cutter a certified glove cutter in his own right uh, I'm sure that he and my grandmother um, although they hadn't married yet they couldn't afford to until he until he got that first job as a uh, as a glove cutter I'm sure that that they were living very very hand-to-mouth as he was as he was learning his trade and there is something about writing which is not dissimilar that you there is a certainly a there's an art to it everybody Mm -hmm. understands that but there is a craft to it absolutely something about that that time that one Mm -hmm. needs to spend often largely unpaid and Mm -hmm. lots and lots of work um that maybe not everybody understands in this day and age when it seems like it's so easy to just throw words together yeah yeah yeah, um, that's that's one of the most difficult things about about teaching yourself how to write and teach teaching other people how to write is that almost everybody misunderstands just how long it's going to take for you for you to get there. Anne Patchett said in in one of her store one of the best essays uh, I've ever read about writing called the Getaway Car. Um, she says that that um, uh, w- anybody who has ever picked up a cello <laughs> knows instinctively that you're not going to be playing that instrument in Carnegie Hall anytime soon. Right? It's a it it feels foreign. And there are so many things that you need to do. And the first time you draw that bow, you understand intuitively just how much you have to learn, just how difficult and complicated what you're setting about to do is. And so you factor in your imagination. um, If when you pick that thing up and you love it, despite its difficulty, you still in your mind have to say to yourself this is going to be a very very long road that i'm going down before i can number one probably play um for the relatives when they come over on thanksgiving (laughs) it's going to be a while before i'm even that good and then you know those the the, the, during an apprenticeship the various you know things that you have to do over a period of years uh, and even with just astonishing dedication, it's going to take you a very long time because what you're looking at here is something foreign. It's, you're going to have to learn it. It's not part of you. 
Whereas for a writer, the problem is that, that it's words and you've been talking almost your entire life. And so you think, why not? Right? A year should be plenty of time, shouldn't it? I mean, I just, we're just going to, we're going to write the words down. We're going to put them through a spell check. <laughs> right? Um, um, I have stories to tell. My, my parents had stories to tell. I'm, you know, I come from a family of, of bullthrowers. Uh, why shouldn't I, why shouldn't I be able to tell stories? It's just an extension of, of, of what I've, you know, been doing for a very, for a very long time. Um, and I think of, I still think of that in terms of my own family. I come from a long line of people who were telling stories and, um, pretty, um, uh, pretty, um, uh, pretty good storytellers, uh, but not, they're not writing, right? But they're, but they're, but they're good, but they're good storytellers, my father in particular. But the amount of time that it actually takes to get good, um, is most writers just misjudge. And they don't misjudge by a couple of months. They misjudge by years how long it's going to take. Partly because the competition is stiff, but also because you don't know what you don't know. And you don't know, and, you, and it's very difficult to judge that, that gap, which seems um, shorter, than, shorter than it is. Well, this is a quote that I really identified with. Hunger remembered is not the same as hunger felt. Indeed, for some, that's the final cruel joke that hard-won mastery of craft coincides almost to the minute with passion's ebb. Art offered shoulders to stand on, often as not demures. Right. Right. Because that thing right. that you're talking about, that grabbing the cello where you right. have that passion, right. or in your case, in, in this book you're describing grabbing a guitar, a guitar as, as a yeah. teenager because that was my first hunger yeah yeah that, i mean that yeah. that idea that yeah. i really really want to do this yeah like that that you're right over time that doesn't necessarily stay at that same level in fact for most people it won't no uh and for me what part of the part of the cruelty was that that when i felt that first hunger and as i describe in that in that essay um, that that first hunger to play rock and roll at a very high volume. Um, what was coming between me and and doing that? I thought was equipment. You know, I had a kind of a beat up guitar and an and an amplifier with one blown speaker, and um, and I got together with 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 some from some other uh, high school kids, and we formed we formed a band, um, and we weren't we weren't. Obviously, we weren't very good, but we deceived ourselves into thinking that that um, that if we just had better equipment, we'd 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 be we would get better, and we would become worthy of our instruments. We would become worthy of our drums, worthy of our worthy of our guitars, our keyboards, and and all of that. And um, so I did, I played band, I played in various bands in, in high school, and I put myself uh, in part um, through graduate school, playing 12 string guitar in a, in a, in a restaurant in, in Tucson, uh, for the same gig for like, like seven, seven years or so. Um, and, uh, and, and I finally got, at some point, I finally got this gorgeous 
Gibson guitar with pearl inlay uh, on the uh, uh, on the, on the neck, and it was a 12 string. And uh, you put that thing up next to a microphone. Uh, you know, you're singing into one microphone, and you get and you and you and you've got your 12 string guitar, a really good one with a throaty. It's got some bass to it, and you strum that thing through a microphone, and it sounds like an orchestra. I mean, it sounds really, really good. Um, and I, but I remember getting that 12 string guitar, the kind of instrument that I had been lusting for since I was like 15 and hearing how good it sounded also convinced me for the first time that I was never going to be as good as that instrument, that I was always going to be, I could get better, but I was never going to be as good as that instrument was. And so, yeah, I mean, the hunger the hunger is the hunger is wonderful. It'll keep it'll keep you going. It'll drive you forward. It'll it, that 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 desire is is sufficient to keep you going for a very long time. But my God, it can be heartbreaking. That realization that you finally have everything at your disposal that you you can't blame it on anything else anymore. Um, and 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 the and the realization that that. Um, all right, I've achieved a kind of level here. I might get a little bit better, but I'm never going to be good. I'm never going to be really good. And writing, on the other hand, was something that, despite the fact that nobody else seemed to think I would be any good, <laughs> at least for, for a very long time, that was something that, as I continued um, to plug away, um, um, it did seem to me that as bad as the writing was, at times, and there were many times that it was really bad, um, I began to sense that it might be okay. Not so much because I would be good enough or that I would be skilled enough, but that the people that I wanted to write about, the characters who have graced my novels all of these years, what happened was that at some point I became convinced that they were good enough. These imaginary, these people that I wanted to write about, the kinds of lives that they lived. Um, not many people were telling their stories. And so at, at some point, um, um, it was different than looking at that guitar uh, and, and, and realizing how beautiful it was and that I was never going to be worthy of it. It seemed to me that maybe because these characters who were swimming in my head seemed so real and their stories seemed so important, it seemed to me that, you know, despite the daily evidence that the writing wasn't as good as it should be, I never felt, you know, that I'll never be worthy of these people or I'll never be able to tell their stories. It always seemed to me that, you know, that I could, if I kept at it, maybe I'd be able to. One of the pieces that I enjoyed write, uh, reading was the one that you wrote about Jennifer Boylan. Yeah. And it's very interesting to me now because this was something that happened um, how many years ago? 15 years ago, maybe? Oh, longer than that, I think. I th as a matter of fact, I think, well, yeah, something like that. The 10-year the anniversary of She's Not There, Jenny's, Jenny's groundbreaking memoir, um, was um, a couple of years ago, I think. So yeah, we're talking we're talking pretty close to pretty close to fifteen years now. And of course, I think of it as longer than that because we were friends longer than that. But um, yeah. 
but it's such an interesting kind of almost historical perspective on what it means to have been transgender mm-hmm. at a time when nobody was really talking about it. Right. And you were a professor at a small liberal arts college mm-hmm. in somewhat rural Maine, mm-hmm. along with another professor mm-hmm. who decided to go through with gender reassignment surgery. Right. And what that meant to you, to your wife, to Jennifer, to Jennifer's then wife. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. I'm sure that many of the issues still exist for many people, but at least now we have a conversation around this. Right. And what you were writing about was something that was very new. The landscape has changed. Um, I, I remember one of the one of the first conversations that Jenny and I ever had uh, about this. Um, Jenny herself, then then Jim at the time. But Jenny said, um, one of the first things she said is it's going to take you a really long time to wrap your mind around this because, in fact, my life, what I've lived, what I've had to deal with is statistically such a small percentage of, of human beings ever have to... Uh, um, ever have to deal with anything like like it's just so unusual there are so few of us only to discover that this was part of Jenny's own education I think was that partly because of this book that she wrote um, uh, um, we began to understand just how many more people were transgendered then uh, either male to female or female to male there were so many more of them out there that than even Jenny had had any idea um, and so the landscape um, of of um, uh, has changed in just a very very short period of time the landscape has changed and you're right you go back and you read this essay now imagining Jenny which is part of this new book of mine and it has the feel of a, of, of an historical document which given the fact that it was really only a little over 10 years ago um, it, it it's another way of looking at the ways in which this country has 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 changed it's gone from um, you know 20 years ago there you know the number of people who uh, who would say at least admit in public that they thought gay marriage was a good idea I mean that is that has just radically changed in in a period of two decades and the same thing with um, um, with our with our understanding of of, of transgender uh, issues, as uh, I don't think Jenny would mind me telling this p- particular story, but um, Jenny, not too long ago, was 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 in a um, some sort of a conference, and 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 um, and she does she does a lot of public speaking on on transgender issues, and she was I think she was at a conference where she overheard. Um, two young transgender women talking about her and talking about um, talking about she's not there and how important the book was uh, to them but apparently in this period of 10 or 12 years um, the term Russo in the transgender community as a result of as a result of Jenny's book, a Russo, at least in certain echelons of the of the transgender community, is the person is the person um, who remains your friend and helps you and helps you 
um, through whatever it is that you have to go through, whether it's gender reassignment surgery, as I did, I went uh, with, with, with Jenny uh, 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 and her wife uh, and one or two other friends for, um, so I was there during that and, and, and of course, you know, we're, we're, still, we're still dear friends. But, but apparently as a result of this book, and you're, if you're transgendered and you have a good friend like that, 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 that friend is a Russo. It's just called a Russo, right? And, um, but enough time has elapsed so that many people know the term, but they don't know what its, they don't know what its origin is. And the conversation that Jenny overheard was uh, one young transgender woman saying to another, isn't it weird that Jenny Boylan's Russo was really named Russo? <laughs> Which I, I just, when Jenny told me that story, it just completely cracked me up. It's like, there was an episode of The Sopranos, right, where, where someone remarked that isn't it really weird that Lou Gehrig died of Lou Gehrig's disease? Same thing, right? Yeah, there's yeah. a certain strange meta quality yeah. situation. Yeah. Yeah. There are worse ways to be known, I guess. I, yeah, absolutely. I know. I take it as a great compliment. Well, I've enjoyed our conversation, and I encourage people to read The Destiny Thief because I, it's really very, um, it's interesting and it covers a lot of different topics in different ways. Yeah. So yeah. I think it, it offers a, an, uh, an encapsulation of much of the things that you did outside of the fiction that yeah. you write, yeah. which, is, which is great to have because as a writer, it's nice to know that there's a larger, um, we'll use the word landscape before, the landscape yeah. of self and landscape yeah. of craft that goes beyond just what you specialize in. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I think it's, it's uh, people, have, people have said to me who have, who have looked at this um, uh, have, have, have said that the book provides a kind of, of, of master key uh, into the, you, you can kind of flip the lock and get a, get a sense of the, get a sense of, uh, what sort of person would have written Empire Falls or or Nobody's Fool or Bridge of Sighs and just it, it gives in, and and a lot of and, and a lot of and a lot of what readers um, think of as kind of extra value uh, when a writer goes on tour. Uh, they think of it like they, they are. You get in a room. You get in the room with a writer, and the and your writer talks, and you begin to. I don't know if you really do understand the writer better or not, but it but it feels it it feels to the to the person in the audience like a like like some sort of some sort of added dimension to it. And so this this might be in in some ways this book is a it might be a, a, a some some sort of skeleton key uh, into uh, uh, into these books. I've been speaking with novelist and screenwriter Richard Russo, who is the author of eight novels, two short story collections, and the memoir Elsewhere. His novel Empire Falls won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2002, and his new collection of essays, The Destiny Thief, comes out in May. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you, Lisa. I really enjoyed it. Dr. Zach Mazzoni, DO, created Dayspring Integrative Wellness in Bath, Maine, with the belief that true health comes from building healthy relationships with your community, with your doctor, and with yourself. As a board-certified family and integrative medicine physician, Dr. Mazzoni and the whole staff at Dayspring are committed to supporting your wellness journey by providing integrative family medical care, osteopathic manipulation, herbal and lifestyle consultations, counseling, and wave therapy. Dayspring offers an innovative membership-based model of healthcare that gives you time together with Dr. Mazzoni to build a personalized wellness plan based on your health goals. 
Daily access for our acute appointments is available, and you can even schedule a secure video conference call in the privacy of your own home. I know Dr. Zach and his family, and I believe strongly in the personalized whole-person approach to health that he provides. This is why I am encouraging you to find out more for yourself by visiting dayspringintegrativewellness.com or by calling them directly at 207-751-4775. Dayspring, wellness the way it should be. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristelle, Portland Art Gallery, Art Collector Maine, GrownUpGirl.com, and by Dayspring Integrated Wellness. Our editorial producer is Kate Gardner. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Andrew King and Dr. Lisa Belli. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.